Well, hello there, and welcome to our midweek Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ. Uh, you're watching this um, whenever you're watching it, but we'll be, it will be posted on uh, Thursday as normal, but I'm recording it on Tuesday because as you watch this, uh, my family and I are out of town attending a friend's wedding. And so uh, I'm recording this ahead of time, and that's fine because I actually have to pick up some things that I thought I had taught last week. But we had a, a microphone battery that died and uh, did so right at the halfway point of our lesson. So I'm going to do the last half hour of what would have been lesson number two, and that'll just be lesson number three as we study how we got the Bible. Uh, we're talking about how we came to possess the 66 books of our Bible that we have and, and how linguistically and historically those things made it to 2021. So last week, you'll remember we were talking about the idea of, of an aggregator, right? We're familiar with aggregation. We look at websites, news websites. A lot of what we consume in our news is from aggregation. They're bringing in multiple sources. We have to understand that that is a part of how the Bible came to be. Uh, one example I'll use, and I'm going to get this all wrong because I just don't know the history or anything like that, but suppose you know, 150 years ago or whenever it was, there were, there were scientists, there were people studying things and learning things, and they discovered things like microorganisms, germs, things that can be transferred. And as uh, the, the people doing those experiments and doing that study, they, they discovered things and they wrote them down, right? They wrote them down, they wrote, made their notes, and someone else read those notes, and they presented those to other people, and they wrote them down as well, and they copied them. And people got those notes and copied those. And along the way, they were put into textbooks so that others could study them uh, in greater numbers. But even still, studies were going on, and we differentiated between viruses and bacteria. And we looked at how they were impacted by, by different environments and how different treatments worked against them. And all along the way, the original notes from the scientists that discovered the very origins of these things began to evolve. And we began to add to it. We began to clarify it. And it was written and written and rewritten and rewritten and edited. And today, if you have a medical textbook, you can learn those same things, but we don't have the original notes that that first person wrote. They get lost. Same is true, particularly with the early part of the Old Testament. And we talked about how the writings of Moses were copied and recopied and recopied again, and maybe even edited and things changed and added to them. And so what came to be those first few books were not really those first few books yet. They were the writings of Moses, but they weren't called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, they were called the writings of Moses. And they came down and they were changed and edited and, and written. And eventually, and we talked about this last time, uh, in the time of King Judah, there were two sets, there were two kingdoms, there were two sets of priests and uh, the Mushite in the north and the Aaronic in the south. And it was discovered by King Jos Josiah and his people in the south, a book of law. We believe this was the book, what became the book of Deuteronomy. We believe that it was the book of law that was recorded, perhaps by Moses, perhaps by others along the way. But it came into the hands of Josiah and those who served with him. And they realized that they had lost track of this law. Uh, they had other writings, they had other source materials, but here was this document of the law fleshed out. And it took uh, a, an individual, we call him the Deuteronomist, to put this together and to um, build 
flesh out that law and give us probably what was at that point the close to the final version of the book of Deuteronomy. And he then uh, proceeded to write more from that. Joshua, Judges, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, which we have in our Bible divided into two books because they were found on two different scrolls, but they were one book. And this, so this Deuteronomist took forth writing the history of God's people, trying to finish the story. And all he had to go on were some copies of copies of copies of writings from people like Moses and others. Uh, and he built and fleshed out and edited and aggregated this story in the book of Deuteronomy and the books that followed it chronologically. And so that brings us to what we were talking about last week when we were so rudely interrupted. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see, and, and then again in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see two different um, things being said that sound like they're contradictory. And we were talking about the discrepancies that exist in some of these writings and some of these stories. You can read the same story in uh, uh, Kings as you read in Chronicles, but they sound different. And there are all these changes and these differences, and, and we might say discrepancies, but they're not really discrepancies. So the, what we're considering here is um, that in 2 Samuel, it says that David's line, that is the royal line, <clears throat> will keep the throne even if they sin. Okay? But then in 1 Kings, it says they will keep the throne of Israel only if they obey. So the, the Deuteronomist, the one who was editing and fleshing out and adding to this book of Deuteronomy, that we now, what we now call the book of Deuteronomy, and understand it's so hard to kind of wrap our brains around this. We see Genesis, Exodus, we see any book or letter in the Bible as a fixed thing because it's final, it's done, and we've had it in the same form for quite a while. Different translations here and there, but essentially the same thing. We all agree upon the book, chapter, and verse, which we added, okay? They weren't written in book, chapter, verse. They weren't even written with vowels. We'll get to that. But they, we see it as a fixed thing, as though Moses wrote Genesis, locked it up, and that's what we have. Well, we don't even have the manuscripts that Moses wrote, much less is there any evidence to suggest it was dictated by the Spirit, locked in, and that was it. No, he wrote... He wrote because God told him to write it down. And he wrote these things down. But to get to our hands today, it had to be picked up somewhere along the way because Moses died. He died before the narrative in Genesis even finishes, or in Exodus rather, even finishes. So someone had to pick it up and finish and fill in the gaps. And that was done throughout the centuries until we get to about 600 or so years before Jesus' time when it was picked up by eventually the Deuteronomist who helped to finish the story and helped to take all these other source materials. Remember those books we talked about a couple weeks ago? All these things that are referenced in our scriptures that we don't have? Books of law and prophecies, things that we don't know what they are, where they are. We have some of them, but we don't have all of them. And yet they're referenced in our own scriptures as being source material for what we do have. So somewhere along the lines, these manuscripts were put together, these prophecies, these laws were aggregated and edited until we reach, really, you got to get in pretty good ways into A.D. before we have something that looks pretty concrete like what we have today. And that one we'll get to next week as well, how that happened. So <clears throat> here we have those two verses, right? So when I refer to books, I say all that to say that when I refer to a book, the book of Deuteronomy or, or something like that, I'm referring to what we have uh, because that's the name we know it by, but it would not have been in the form we have it as I'm referring to it. So when I say 
that Josiah found the book of Deuteronomy, what he found was the core of what we call Deuteronomy. What he found was a book of law that was written, perhaps out of source material from Moses and other authors. They were putting some things together. He's picking it up. He's continuing the story. And the book of Deuteronomy is edited. The books of history are written. And we see these things that, that seem to be problems and contradictions, but the aggregator of the Pentateuch and the Deuteronomist, well, they don't seem to be troubled by these things. They don't seem to be troubled by these contradictions. Uh, an example I would use, if you go to certain news aggregation websites, maybe you read Salon or Vox or, um, or uh, Drudge Report. Um, uh, there, there's a number of, of sites like the Huffington Post would be another one. Uh, but if you go to Drudge Report, you'll see stories from all over, all different news sources. You'll even see editorials. He, he tries to, Matt Drudge tries to put um, all the uh, columnists, all the editorial columnists from across the country into one place. You can read about the same subject, the same news item from two different people and get two different sides. They contradict each other because we have two people writing about the same thing from different perspectives. We understand that. So did those who helped to edit and finalize these books of the Bible and put them closer to the form we have now. They saw these things like the, the doublets we talked about, the stories that are told twice in those books. They're told from different perspectives. They're told for different purposes. And they didn't seem troubled by it because they knew that they were telling the same story. They were concerned with the arc of history. They didn't really get concerned with the details. And so we have these verses about, well, David's line is going to continue unconditionally. David's line is going to continue only if they obey. Well, read closely you'll see that in the unconditional passages, it talks about David's line having a throne because they would be royal and they would have a throne. But you look at the passage in Kings and it says, in Israel, only if you obey. Well, what happened? Well, they were in Judah by this time. They had lost the throne because they didn't obey. And so when you see the detail that yes, they had a throne, but it wasn't in Israel, those two fit perfectly because unconditionally they would have a throne, but only conditionally would it be in Israel. So this, uh, this difference, while it seems almost insignificant to us, but does seem like a contradiction, was an important distinction that allowed it to not be a contradiction for, uh, for the, the Deuteronomist. Uh, references to time are very, very different uh, the way that they would have written. I'll be 35 in August, uh, so I'm 34 now, according to anybody that would, would say so. But to a Jew, I'm 35 because I'm in my 35th year. And on August 3rd, I'm going to turn 36 in Jewish years. But I'll be 35 in the way we count time. They viewed it differently. There's no word in any of our scripture, in any of the, the languages that we translate from, that means forever. When we talk about forever, we mean it forever. It's never going to end. They don't have words like that in these languages. You will see things that, you will actually find the word forever in the Bible, but it's a word that's been used to, to convey a meaning. The way they would have said it would have been more like, uh, until the day is over, or until, uh, until uh, all heaven and earth pass away. That's how Jesus talks about the law and, and abolishing the law. Um, it means forever until it isn't. And, and that's kind of foreign to us. But that's what it means. It means it's going to be forever until it's not. So that's why you would see things like they call this place something un unto this day, or you can see this here unto this day. 
Well, it was unto, unto the day they wrote it, but it might have changed. So there's some definite phrasing here to indicate that this is going to go on forever, but it's not forever the way we know it. It's forever as they knew it, which meant it was until it wasn't. And so there'll be things like the king shall reign forever. But what the Deuteronomist who was writing those words didn't know and couldn't really predict was that Josiah was about to die. King Josiah was about to die. And he had done a lot of work to reform uh, in Judah the practice of the law. They established Jerusalem as the as the location of the temple. They established that as their center of worship so the priests could oversee and ensure that they were following the law properly. They tore down all the alternate sites for worship. The north was worshiping, worshiping at Shiloh, and so they were kind of out of luck because it was the south that received this law. And they began doing these reforms with the help of the Deuteronomist to finish out the law. So as, as Josiah's Doing all these reforms, the Deuteronomist is recording not only the history, but also finishing the edit on the book, what we now call the book of Deuteronomy, to reinforce those reforms and to flesh out that law into practice. Um, And so it was written from that perspective. Consider this. People of my age will remember 9-11. You know where you were. I was in first period Spanish class, Tuesday morning, September 11th, um, in the 10th grade. I remember watching it all happen. And even for some time after it happened, I could open up a textbook and there'd be a picture of the skyline of New York City. And it might say the World Trade Center towers are the tallest buildings in New York City. But that wasn't true in 2002. It wasn't true on September the 12th, 2001. But when it was written in that textbook, it was true. And so we have to understand when it was written to understand the context of what these phrases mean. So Josiah died. Josiah uh, was killed. He foolishly uh, went, to, went to war against Egypt and was killed by an Egyptian arrow, and he died. And, um, and things changed in the kingdom. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Because um, So after, the, the, after Josiah died... The Deuteronomist has done his work. He continues to finish his work. And we have a new editor enter the picture from that point on in the history of the formation of Scripture. Uh, this person is called the Redactor, and he wrote Chronicles um, and, and, and wrote probably most of the rest of what we call the Old Testament. Uh, wrote it, uh, edited it, put it together, with the exception of one thing, which I'll talk about in just a second. I like building this. So we have the redactor. He changed some of the stories. They did, he called the redactor because he redacted a few things. When you read the story of King Manasseh in the book of Kings, he's evil from start to finish. He's evil, sinful king, dies that way. When you read it in Chronicles, he repents at the end. Why? Kings was written as they were leaving their land, going into captivity or exile. Chronicles is written as they're coming back. They're coming back to their land, and so they're restoring and they restore the story of their king um, and, and tell it and tell that part of it, which is important. Um, different stories from different perspectives. So let's answer this question. Who was the Deuteronomist? Well, he was the person that probably provided us closest to the final edits of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, wrote a good portion of Deuteronomy itself and coalesced that into the book known as Deuteronomy, wrote the books of Samuel, the books of the Kings, and one other, 
that we think this person had a hand in. How do we know all that? Well, uh, we could talk a long, long time about linguistics and, and syntax and all the ways that we can see similarities. We talked about that with the doublets, that we have Yahweh and we have Elohim, right? And then we have priestly language like El Shaddai and Adonai. But in this case, we see that there's similarities in these first eight books, and then there's one other. It's not in the same order in our Bible, but it's the book of Jeremiah. So, was Jeremiah the Deuteronomist? Good argument could be made. But Jeremiah didn't do his own writing. He had a secretary mentioned in the Bible, a man named Baruch. Baruch wrote for Jeremiah. He wrote down Jeremiah's prophecy. It was originally thrown in a fire. The king threw it in the fire. They had to rewrite it. But when they're rewriting it, they're, they're on the run. So it's getting dropped along the way. And when it's picked up, and it's all out of order. In fact, if you were to, if a, if a Jewish person were to read the book of Jeremiah, as they're reading it, they'll start here and they'll hop over here and they'll jump over here and go over here because the book of Jeremiah is crazy out of order. But they know the story and they know the order. Now, you might say, why don't they just put it back in order? That's how seriously they take their scripture. That's how seriously Baruch took their scripture. This was a man who had a high esteem for the importance of the word. He had a high value on the scripture. How lucky are we? How blessed are we? How fortunate are we that these things fell into the hands of someone who had such a high view of scripture and the sanctity of these words and that the Holy Spirit guided him, we believe, to edit and to, to, to change and to put together and to, and to coalesce these books. I think Baruch was probably the Deuteronomist. A lot of scholars think it was Baruch. Some still say Jeremiah. Most likely Baruch. Interesting fact about Baruch, of all the artifacts that we have in our, in, that the world has in their possession uh, that, that are found in the Bible or that have some connection to the Bible, most of them are things like, this is from that time, and Paul may have used something like this, okay? We have one artifact that we are almost 100% certain was actually handled by and owned by someone mentioned in the Bible. We don't have any other artifacts that we can say definitively this belonged to someone in Scripture. We have one thing. It's a seal that would have been used to seal a document, like a signature, and it belongs to Baruch. It says on the seal, Baruch, son of so-and-so, scribe. Baruch, we have his seal. He touched it. He used it. And he wrote what we would call today Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Jeremiah. That's the Deuteronomist. That's the work he did. And, and then we had someone else come along, maybe several someone else's, and put together the rest of what we call the Old Testament, recorded and, and, and put down the prophecies that were given. We'll talk about those prophecies in a, in a little bit. Um, in Psalm 137, and I won't go there now, but you can read it. Um, in Psalm 137, there is a song that is written, and it is a song of lament. It is about the time in Babylon, Babylonian captivity. Uh, it is about the time when the people were taken away. And we're talking in the 
six, 620s, somewhere in there B.C., 622, I think it was, B.C. What happened is Israel, uh, the, the Israelites were taken over. They were overthrown, defeated, and by Babylon. Only a portion of Israel went to Babylon in captivity, a, a relatively small percentage. Some stayed in Jerusalem with no temple, no walls, and most of them fled to Egypt at that time. Uh, in Psalm 137, we see a song that is written talking about being in Babylon, talking about that journey and talking about that time in captivity. Now, it's in this period of time where all of that source material that I was telling you about that led to the building, editing, and aggregating of those early books, it's lost. Most of that stuff is lost in this time. That's why we don't have any of it. Lost to history, lost to the captivity. So the Jews in, you have Jews in, in Babylon, you have Jews in Egypt, and you have some remaining in Jerusalem. Uh, this has some interesting uh, political ramifications even today. The ongoing conflict between the Arab world and the Israeli world, and we've seen that in the last few weeks, has to do with a family dispute. The Muslims believe that Ishmael is the chosen one, not Isaac, that he was the, the proper uh, heir to, uh, to Abraham's promise. But also they look at this point in history where the Jews went to Egypt and they were living amongst Arabs. And then 50 years later, a good portion of them leave and go back home. In the, in the Muslim teaching, in the teaching of Islam, Jews are Arabs that betrayed and abandoned their brethren. They look at that moment of Jews leaving Egypt as a Jewish abandonment, an, an abandonment by Arabs of other Arabs to go back to Jerusalem. Um, that's how they see it. I don't think that I don't believe that's true, um, but that's how they see it. So there's there's modern political ramifications in all of this. Um, in Egypt, it appears that the Jews tried to pick up. And by the way, um, historically, we think Jeremiah went on that journey to Egypt, but we don't think he made it. We lose track of Jeremiah somewhere along the way. So it's likely that he, he, he died or just isn't heard from. But the Jews in the time that they were in Egypt tried to continue in their practice and with their law. They were a little confused about some of it. They didn't have everything. They lost a lot of that source material. Um, there is an island. It's sometimes an island, sometimes a peninsula, depending on the time of year, called Elephantine. Elephantine in Egypt there was a temple that was built there where Jews worshipped. Some of their worship during that time, it seems, wasn't in, in accordance with what the law says. They were worshipping a, a male and female god at one time, and there were other influences brought in. But that temple actually stood there for about 1,100 years. It was finally destroyed about 500 or so A.D., uh, and the Jews that were still there, and some did stay behind, they refused to rebuild it because they said it would become so corrupt. But this brings to mind a real question, a real uh, difficult kind of, of consideration. You had Jews in Babylon. You had Jews still in Jerusalem. You had Jews in uh, Egypt, worshiping there at Elephantine. They're trying their best. The ones in Babylon are trying to figure it out. The ones in Jerusalem are trying to figure it out. And up to that point, God had lived in their temple. They built a house for God. They'd always had a place for God to dwell with them, the tabernacle and the temple. Where is God? 
Is God still a national God? Does he have one place where he lives and dwells? That's the the question that has to be asked. That's the question they're wrestling with. And it seems in the grander context to be an interesting period of time where God is trying to teach them something, where he's trying to reveal something. Now God no longer dwells at a temple in Jerusalem where all these people live. He dwells wherever they are, wherever they will worship him. There is no temple. They have to ask the question, where is God? And is he a God just of Israel or is he a broader thing that is for all people? Well, we know that come Jesus, that's the lesson we learn, that God is for everyone. And I believe that the foundation of that concept was being laid here uh, in that time. So we don't know a lot about those years in captivity. What we do know is what it looked like when they returned. In all three of these places, you still have people writing and you still have prophets prophesying. Uh, The prophets are interesting. You have the major prophets. And and when we say major and minor, it's just based on the length of the book. It doesn't mean anyone was more important. But some of those minor prophets, they just show up, they prophesy, and then they're gone. We don't even know what happened to them. We don't know anything about them. But in all of these places, you have prophets that are working. They're prophesying. Their stories are being written. And then after 50 years, the people are allowed to come back. Um, Whenever um, Cyrus conquered Babylon. He let the Jews return. When they return, there are no more prophets. From that point on, we don't hear from any more prophets. The line of David is pretty much lost as far as the royal line. It's gone. We don't know a lot about those years. We don't even know exactly how many came back. Different people record different numbers in scripture, and it doesn't. we don't really know who they're counting. If they're just counting those coming back from Babylon or both or north and south, we don't know. Um, but we do know the point of all of this. And it's important to remember that as we get deep in the weeds on some of this stuff. Galatians 3, 23 through 29, tells us that all of this was written as a schoolmaster to teach us about Jesus. That's the point. All of this was written to bring us to Jesus. So the people return. And by the way, um, we're getting into what we'll call the intertestamental period. That's the period of time between the writings of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament. And it's a period of, of 300 or so years, three or 400 years. And a lot happens in that time. A lot happens. A lot happens in the world that makes it more conducive for Jesus. In that period of time, and we'll talk some about this next week um, regarding these events, in that time you have a unified language that develops in this part of the world. You have infrastructure developments. You have political changes and transitions. Um, a lot of things happening to the Jewish people um, that, that paved the way for the environment into which Jesus came. Talk about all that soon. But you have now a people returning and they rebuild their temple. They rebuild their temple. They rebuild their walls. The Mushites are gone. Aaron's line remains of the priests. And we have a new lawgiver. It's Ezra, the prophet Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, to some degree, begin to rebuild the law, taking the writings and the work that were done by the Deuteronomist and by others 
and putting them together and teaching them and re-educating the people. Because after a while, it doesn't take long for things to get lost for law, for culture, for um, language to become lost. In fact, as we'll talk about next week, the language had completely changed by not too long after this. Hebrew goes away. They speak a different language now. We'll get to that. So he and Nehemiah worked to restore the law. And this is the first time that Jews began being referred to as the people of the book because they now had their book. Around this time, we get pretty much the final versions of what will become the Old Testament in our day. And God wasn't sending prophets anymore because now they have a book. Now they have a book. And this is a period of time for a few hundred years where God is quiet. God doesn't say anything to them. They have a book. Uh, but the world is being prepared for Jesus who would come. Uh, and, and important couple things to say here about this. Because God, they have this book and, and they're not hearing from God directly and they're not hearing from prophets. And I want to point this out as we close this lesson. Um, the, is, the, the faith of Islam has the Quran. They view their Quran as what we would call an avatar of Muhammad or of Allah. They look at that book and the pages and the, the paper and the ink as being holy. And what you do to that book is what you do to Allah. If you throw that book on the ground or tear its pages, you are insulting Allah. Christians, and by the way, the churches of Christ, we've been known as the people of the book because we have a very strong view of Scripture and its importance. And that's good. That's good. But the Bible is not our avatar. If I use my Bible for years and years and years and it begins to wear out or tear up, guess what? I can toss it in a recycle bin and buy a new one. And I haven't offended God. Because the Bible is not an avatar. It's not an idol. It's not a road map or even a law book. It's our story. It's our story that's been written by many people over many centuries. And by God's providence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it ends up in our hands. In 1976, um, I believe it would have been at Dodger Stadium. As I think the Dodgers were playing. Rick Monday was a, was a ball player, I think, for the Dodgers. And a couple guys ran out on the field in between innings and were trying to light an American flag on fire. It was kind of the thing to do back then. Um, and I'm sure there are some people that would say, what a, what a great expression of freedom of speech. It, it really is the First Amendment in action. But Rick Monday didn't think so, because in our country, unlike many other countries, our flag is an avatar. Look at how upset people get about kneeling for the national anthem or how we fold it or whether it touches the ground. We take care of our flag and we have all this decorum and rules around it because we believe that it represents um, our nation in a very direct way. Rick Monday ran out on the field, snatched up the flag before they could light it on fire, and he is celebrated to this day. There's iconic pictures of him doing that because he was defending our country by defending the flag. We don't, we don't have that relationship with the Bible and our God. Our God is our God. The book is not our God. We follow the Bible to point us to Jesus. And understanding how we got what we have today is to understand that we have a story that was written over thousands of years by thousands of hands, and thank God for them. Thank God for them because we have 
now this written word that points us to Jesus. But our story is still being written. We are writing it by how we live and by what we teach. Next week, we're going to get into what happened after this. We have, we've come into the intertestamental period uh, in the three or 400 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. We have changes going on in the world. We have changes that are lining up, I believe, by the providence of God to bring us one step closer. And we have a new translation that finds its way into the picture called the Septuagint. And we'll talk about that and how it, it paved the way for us to have a pretty firm, locked-in Old Testament and what happened with it. All right, join us next week for that. Next week, right back here on Thursday. We'll see you then.